Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The nights are drawing in, ladies and gentlemen. The temperature is falling. The summer is almost certainly over and we're running out of energy. And I don't just mean we've been overdoing it at the gym or perhaps cycling too much. No, it's Britain PLC that seems to be running low on fuel. Apparently the Russians are holding back the gas supply, driving prices sky high. Renewable and green energy sources aren't providing enough. And according to the eco-experts, I should say, it hasn't been windy enough. Not nearly windy enough, apparently, uh, to make any energy at all. So here we are, the world's sixth biggest economy without enough fuel to see us through the winter. And with power companies already primed to set record high prices next month, it's a triple whammy for consumers. And just to make uh, things even worse, not only are you not going to have enough energy, you're going to have to bail out the companies that can't sell you the energy because they're all going under. Marvellous, isn't it? Absolutely tremendous. But don't worry, Boris Johnson will ride to the rescue, no doubt. Oh, hang on a minute. He's flown off to New York to give a speech about climate change. Oh, and he's meeting Joe Biden as well. What's he doing over there? For heaven's sake, there's nothing like um, fiddling while Rome doesn't burn, is there? Meanwhile, those insulate maniacs back on the M25, there's nothing like um, watching people trying to stop traffic in order to draw attention to the climate crisis when the prime minister of this country has already gone to America to see the president of the United States to talk about the climate crisis. We'll be checking in with Sir John Redwood this morning to ask why we don't have more energy supplies of our own. After all, it's all about Britain, isn't it? 0344 Peter Hitchens is here as well with his take on the metric system, the police and why COVID-fearing commuters are apparently falling down escalators because they're frightened to hold on. We'll also be finding out what's happening in our schools as many start rolling out vaccination programmes for our children. Tell us what's happening where you are and we can tell everybody else. We'll also be checking in with Simon Calder for the latest on the travel industry. As Julie Hartley Brewer said, it's more confusing now than it's ever been. We'll try to get to the bottom uh, of the new rules for October. 0344 499 1000. We'll also be asking Christine Jardine MP how the Lib Den conference went because hardly anybody's written anything about it. Why is there a big trans row going on around Ed Davey? And what was he thinking putting out a picture of himself ironing a shirt? No, I've got no idea either. You listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, you might have woken up this morning to the rather surprising news that apparently we haven't got enough energy. Apparently, it's so expensive now to get gas into this country that some companies are going bust. Now, I'm not quite sure how that works, but I'm sure John Redwood, uh, Sir John Redwood, I should say, Conservative MP for Wokingham, member of the COVID recovery group, can explain it to us. Sir John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How the hell have we got here, I think, is my first question. Well, we've got here because we have um, decided to put much more trust in renewables. And we've just been living through a period when the wind doesn't blow very much. And so it's left short of electricity. At the same time, Mike, there's a global shortage of gas. Uh, Some of the American production was knocked out by Hurricane Ida. The Russians have been a bit scanty with the amount they're prepared to sell into Europe. I think they're trying to press the Germans to sign the big contracts on on the new pipeline that they've built to Russia. And so there's a bit of politics going on there. And Asia is buying up a lot of the LNG. So suddenly the gas market is very short. We're awaiting the recovery of American production. We're awaiting better supplies from Russia. It shows how vulnerable we and everybody else are to a few major producers. Yes. And there are some who say that this was something that was 
going to happen, could have been predicted to happen, and uh, we should have known would happen, given what happened about 10 years ago, when we didn't really uh, focus on homegrown energy, when we didn't really focus on making sure that we had enough storage for our own gas. I mean, I remember, I was saying to Julia just a minute ago, about seven or eight years ago, I think the first time I had a conversation about this with someone, saying, why can't we build more uh, gas fields, if you like, uh, storage tanks under the, uh, under the yep. North Sea? Well, indeed, Mike, I and others have been calling for that for a good few years now, saying that we're still going to need gas and oil for the foreseeable future. So let's have more of it from home sources. It's more reliable. It's actually greener because you don't have to carry it around the world in big tankers. Right. You can get it on a short pipeline straight into where we want it. Uh, and it gives you that much greater security supply. And the industry and government actually knocked out one of our, our biggest uh, gas storage systems. The rough field was used as a, a field where you could re-inject gas and store it. So we had rather more resilience. We now have very little storage. Um, the Germans and the French have five and seven times as much storage of gas available as we do. Uh, so when you get these spikes and short-term interruptions to supply, we're much more vulnerable to them because we don't have several months of supply we can draw down when the prices are very high. Yes, I know. Um, and I've had previous um, sort of problems with Ofgen as well, the way that they operate, because they're supposed to be an organisation that represents consumers in this country, but they seem to represent uh, the manufacturers and the suppliers of energy more than they do uh, the actual customers, you know. So what are they doing? They're supposedly having talks with people, but what's their role in all of this? Well, they regulate the industry and they also administer the, the rules set up by the government. There are a series of price controls, and that helps consumers to some extent, but I think it causes other trouble. I mean, it probably increases the rate of bankruptcy in the gas sector. Uh, and we're seeing some of the more price competitive, smaller companies either going down or suffering very badly because they've been hit by controlled prices at the same time that the raw material is shooting up in price if you're buying it on spot or short term market contracts. Uh, and so sometimes these interventions aren't as helpful as you want them to be. Price controls sound like a good idea for the consumer. Uh, but if they end up damaging supply, the long term interests of everybody is damaged. Yes. But what I suppose my question should have been is what is, is Ofgem actually doing about this problem? And what did they do about trying to stop it from happening? Jonathan Brearley, who heads Ofgem, makes about £330,000 a year. He gave himself and all of his staff a bonus of uh, shared a million pounds between them all uh, over the past 12 months. You know, I'm start, starting to wonder whether he's worth the money. And he also comes from the Department of Climate Change. So he's got a very big green agenda going on. Well, I think these are all good questions. Uh, and the regulator does need to make sure that we have security of supply, uh, as well as being interested in the price of contracts and the short term price to the consumer. And I think it's been a general failure of um, successive governments policies this century in the United Kingdom that they haven't taken security of supply seriously enough. They haven't made it the prime aim of policy to make sure we've always got energy when we need it mm. in the way that we used to in the previous century. And so we've seen the, the energy industry generally working with less and less reserve and less and less resilience. So we now import a lot of electricity, whereas we used to have 10, 20 percent surplus capacity in case one or two stations were hit or in case there was a problem uh, with the energy delivery system. Uh, we don't have anything like that now. We, we're dependent on imports a lot of the time. And in the gas market, as we've just been discussing, they actually took out quite a lot of the ability to store gas and give you that extra resilience. So yeah. I'm hoping now that the energy secretary will tell Ofgem and others uh, that a main aim of government policy is security of supply and that more needs to be done to make sure that in future uh, we do have the gas on tap in, in, a, in a store somewhere and we do have the ability to generate power when the wind's not blowing. Yeah. Well, pure, purely and simply, it's a matter of national security, isn't it? Because if we are, uh, as a nation, and this is being pointed out to me by Phil here, he says, we are a nuclear power, we have coal reserves and vast shale gas reserves, and yet we are in an energy crisis. He says the only people to blame for this are successive useless governments over the last 25 years. Now, you may uh, differ from that particular last part of that opinion, but surely the point Well, is, I wouldn't is... use the word useless, but I'm critical of the governments. Yes. And I have been critical of the governments, and I've been urging the governments to do more about this very issue of security supply and more UK-based energy. And I've always pointed out that 
for every wind farm you put in, you need to think about what the backup capacity is because you will have weeks or even months when the wind doesn't blow as strongly as you need it to, and you need some alternative. Um, and by all means, um, have an alternative which burns fossil fuel, which you don't want to burn all the time. You'd rather use the wind. But you've got to have that reserve capacity there. Thank heavens there were still three coal-fired facilities that hadn't been knocked down because we'd knocked down so many of the old coal power stations. And they've been critical in, in the last few days. Um, they've had to all be fired up again to provide about 4% of our energy, which is not available from wind. Yes. But we actually need a bigger backup than just the 4% these coal stations supply. Uh, and maybe gas is the best answer. Uh, but again, you've got to do it in conjunction with having enough gas coming out of your own North Sea and enough gas in store. But isn't this the fault that the, the problem, if you, if you dig down into this story, Sir John, I bet you you will find that an awful lot of what has gone wrong here is the obsession uh, with turning energy green, the obsession with getting everything to be renewable, to get away from the fossil fuel um, conversation and to try and have some kind of more more forward thinking, you know, carbon zero um, outlook and, it, and it's causing now a national crisis well as some of us have warned that if you if you rely on interruptible or unreliable green energy you do need all this backup capacity and we don't have enough of it and you do have to accept that sometimes you're going to have to run on fossil fuels mm. better still is to go for renewables uh, that don't switch off when the wind doesn't blow I and mean, there are various types of renewable um, obviously, nuclear works all the time, as long as the machinery is working. Um, various types of hydro work in um, all weather conditions. So one needs rather more of that. But you do need enough back backup power. And you have to accept that for the time being, the world is on fossil fuel backup. Yes. And isn't it rather ironic that the Prime Minister, as we are having this conversation, Sir John, is currently in America about to address the United Nations and the importance of climate change policy and on the importance of making sure that countries do exactly what we're doing, uh, which has got us into this mess in the first place? I don't think it's ironic. I mean, I think uh, governments have to do more than one thing. Uh, and I have no problem with cleaning up the, the way we heat things and the way we fire industry and all the rest of it. Uh, but I do urge the government, as I've been doing for 20 years now, successive governments, to also understand that security of supply must come first. You don't have national security uh, if you don't take that seriously. You can't keep the lights on or you can't protect people on low incomes from a big increase in their bills if you haven't taken energy supply and security seriously and have enough reliable power always at your disposal. And one of the advantages of fossil fuels is you can stockpile them. You, you can actually keep gas in underground reservoirs. You, you can keep heaps of coal around so that if you must burn fossil fuel, although they don't want to, uh, they're there available to kick in uh, when, when needs must. Uh, and what about the fracking conversation? Because that's another one which has proved difficult um, because of the climate protesters, because of the people uh, who are currently... Uh, sitting down on the M25 for the fourth time this week. I can't imagine what is a more stupid idea, uh, what they're doing or our continued uh, ability to allow them to do it. We've got uh, we've got courts releasing people, prisons, uh, police officers releasing these guys. They go straight back to the M25. Surely there must be something better uh, to do to stop them doing it. Well, it's certainly right that we, we need to get over the word fracking and understand what we're talking about and what we're talking about here is a range of techniques which have been used for many years to ease oil and gas out of tight structures difficult geologies underground uh, and then that needs to be controlled and regulated because you don't want it to harm watercourses or or damage rock structures in ways that destabilize things but there are ways of controlling these and regulating it it's some of these procedures in many oil and gas wells around the world it's not a particularly new thing and I think we do need to apply it in our own oil and gas reservoirs uh, offshore from the UK, because we're blessed with an awful lot of oil and gas very close at hand. Surely it is better to exploit that in a way that we control, which is safe and sensible, uh, rather than relying on big LNG ships coming halfway around the world or, or relying on 
Russian gas, which Mr. Putin can turn off when he doesn't like us. No, absolutely right. What about these climate change protesters? They're back out there. Insulate Britain, they call themselves. They're back out on the M25 today, uh, somewhere near Leatherhead, I think. And as I was saying, what seems to happen is they get arrested, they get charged, they get let go, and then they go back out and sit on the M25 again. Surely there must be some way of keeping them away from it, isn't there? Well, I think that's a good question for the Home Secretary. I think she's quite keen to try and keep the highways open because they can do a lot of damage. I mean, if you shut the highway down for too long, then time-critical supplies might not reach hospitals. Um, Time-critical perishable food gets delayed longer than you wish it to before it's on the shelves for sale. Uh, This is not helpful to any of us, and it's undermining jobs and interrupting supply chains that are vital to all of us. Mm, Absolutely right. And we're already being told there's a shortage of CO2 now as a result of the the energy shortages and the energy prices, which will have a knock-on effect on all sorts of things, including hospitals, including um, food manufacturers. Uh, We're told this crisis may lead to a three-day week. I remember the three-day week back in the 70s, as I'm sure you do, John. Um, It's not what we want, really, is it? No, it isn't. And it's, it's a very good example of how delicately poised all these complex supply chains now are that you're you're making fertilizer um, you make a business decision that the gas prices are through the roof and so it's no longer economic to make fertilizer at those gas prices and then the byproduct carbon dioxide is not available and then suddenly that has knock-on effects because carbon dioxide is needed needed particularly in meat supply and and in various kinds of of, uh, food processing and uh, various types of food packaging in order to prolong shelf lives and mean that it's wholesome for us. Uh, really desperate. And it's another illustration of the earlier point we were making. That is exactly why you need a gas reserve and you need to be able to draw on that gas reserve uh, at average prices or prior prices and, and not face in crucial industry with these very spiky prices that are simply too dear. Absolutely. So, John, stay with us, if you would, for a moment. We're just going to take a short uh, break. So, John Redwood here, Conservative MP for Woking, a member of the COVID recovery group, of course. Uh, we're talking about the gas crisis, the energy crisis, because apart from anything else, the next question I want to ask to John is, why on earth would we bail out companies who are about to charge people so much money for their energy that people will be unable to pay the bill? It's quite extraordinary. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, An awful lot of people are finding that the company that was supplying their energy has either gone bust or is about to go bust, and they might find themselves having to pay an awful lot more. We're talking to Sir John Redwood, Conservative MP for Wokingham. John, let me read you this from uh, somebody called uh, Dano, who says, My fixed energy tariff ends early October, and my current £1,396 per year is predicted to be £2,950 for the next year. This is beyond belief. And I've also been hearing from people this morning, John, um, who are saying that their um, supplier has gone out of business. Um, They are now being offered much, much higher tariffs by alternative suppliers, and they're not able to really choose who those suppliers are. This whole thing is a mess. I think Ofgem have got an awful lot of uh, questions to answer. Well, I agree. Um, It's very difficult. And let us hope that this is a temporary surge in prices and that it collapses. And so... Uh, as long as you, you've got cover until the prices are a bit lower, then maybe you'll be able to sign up to a longer-term arrangement for next year at more sensible prices again. We're assured by the um, experts in government that this is, this is temporary and there's no underlying shortage of gas that it will sort itself out. Let's hope that's right. Uh, but for people who are already um, with a contract with a company that collapses, uh, there's meant to be uh, a smooth transition to a new company and then you'll have to see what the pricing arrangement's going to be because the why are so many companies going bust it's because there's been this big surge in in the price of the underlying commodity they're trying to sell on and they haven't been able to cover themselves forward fully for all of that and so they simply run out of cash because they're they're selling gas at price x and they're having to pay up to two times x or whatever um, in order to fulfil the contract. And you can't go on like that as a company well, uh, for very long. But surely we, should, we, as, but we, but we as taxpayers, John, should not be having to bail these people out, should we? Well, I think the, the government is desperately concerned to make sure there's continuity of supply for people who have backed some of the smaller, leaner companies that are now in, in great difficulties. And so it is very important to, to look after the consumer. 
Uh, let us see what they come up with, because this is what they're in talks discussing with the companies and with the regulator at the moment. Yeah. I obviously want to have a solution which costs the taxpayer as little as possible. But I do understand the primacy of what the government's trying to do. It's trying to ensure that no consumer is without gas and no consumer faces a ridiculously large increase in their bill. There's got to be some kind of transition yeah. for consumers but, who but even back but, to company but, that's gone under. But before this latest kind of spike in the price and without this latest crisis, there was already going to be a lot of pressure on people's um, bills in October because it had been announced that everybody's bills would be going up massively in October because of energy prices boosting by something like 200% in the year. Well, that's right. And the the customer wasn't happy because the bill was going up by double figure percentages, which are very difficult to afford, particularly for those on lower incomes. Uh, but the companies weren't happy because the, the permitted increase in the price they could charge was not going up enough to cover the cost of the the underlying gas. So everybody was very unhappy. And I think it shows the danger of an overmanaged system. And if you get the overmanaged system wrong, the customer still faces a, an increase in their bill that's quite high and the companies don't have enough money and some of them go bust. And that's not a great position. So I would urge the government with the industry and the regulator to think again and try and come up with a more stable system going forward. Uh, on the back of this crisis. I mean, Boris Johnson's answer this morning seemed to be when he was asked uh, over in America, um, that he was hopeful that the uh, that the market would basically stabilise. I mean, that's not really terribly confidence building, is it? Well, I think he may be right. I mean, I think this is probably a temporary spike. Um, I think the two things that could change quite soon are that I think Europe might start importing more Russian gas once they've secured contracts on Nord Stream 2, the big new pipeline going into Germany. I think there's been a bit of um, politics and disruption ahead of signing up a substantial increase in Russian gas exports to Germany. Uh, and surely we're going to get back quite a lot of American production in the Gulf area, which was taken out by the hurricane. And that, mm. that will be very helpful to world markets. So, yes, yes I think it's quite possible this will prove to be a spike, but uh, like you, I don't know how long the spike could last and how high it might go before it's over. And, and in the meantime, the government, the regulator have got to get people through that difficult position. Well, I'm going to be ordering extra supplies of wood for the old wood burning stove until Michael Gove tells me it's illegal. <laughs> yeah, well, you've got that alternative technology. Some of us don't have that. <laughs> well, do you know, you could always have a bonfire in the garden. I mean, it might be cheaper by the time you finish with it. You just build yourself some kind of huge, you know, pyre uh, that you can just sit around and cook your sausages on. Well, there's probably rules against that. And I certainly wouldn't want to set light to the trees nearby. That would not be a good idea. <laughs> no, indeed. Well, it's good to know that you're still as, uh, as, as, as honest as you always were. So, John Redwood, thank you very much indeed. A member of the COVID Recovery Group, Conservative MP for Wokingham. The bottom line here, ladies and gentlemen, surely is this. The green economy and the absolute and utter obsession with green policies and green energy has got us to this point where, guess what? We're going back to the 1970s. Guess who started this Department for Energy and Climate Change? Have a guess. Ed Miliband. That's right. 12 years ago, he was set up as the head of the new Environmental Department of Energy and Climate Change. It's all gone. I can't say the word I want to say since then. Um, and it's not getting any better. This is Talk Radio across the UK. Online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Gray. Peter Hitchens coming up in the next hour, of course. He's got plenty to say about all manner of things, including the metric system, which uh, my next guest, Christine Jardine, professed uh, to knowing only about the metric system and not about the imperial system. You might be forgiven for not knowing that the Lib Dem conference was on this weekend because uh, it hasn't got an awful lot of coverage. Christine Jardine, though, is Liberal Democrat MP for Edinburgh. Uh, Edinburgh West, I should say. Christine, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How was your weekend? And has somebody taught you about the imperial measurements now? It's nice spent a long time in school learning about the metric system. <laughs> it was a joke because I think it, well, it was, it was a joke. I was being ironic because I really think that, you know, going back to the imperial system, with, you know, some shops apparently have um, market traders and things. I've always used it. And so it, it's just 
what is Boris talking about going back well, to Well, it's, it's nonsense, isn't it? I mean, it's not something... It I mean, I mean, people make out that those... That people that they think like me, uh, sort of, you know, some mad right-wing bigoted Brexiteer, it's all we do is think about waving flags and measuring things in pounds and ounces. It, we don't. And I'm not that person anyway. But the point is, it's a bit of a distraction when there's an, an energy crisis going on. You know, yep. we've got, uh, Absolutely. you know, problems with our uh, immigration control. We've got massive, really big problems to deal with. Um, and Boris has flown off to Washington and New York to make a speech about climate change. I mean, you know, what can you do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it is a distraction. You know, get everybody talking about imperial weights and measures. Um, when we we are facing the situation where we don't know what's coming down the line after the end of this month, when follow ends, business rates, small businesses could be struggling. Uh, we don't know what the, the long-term plan the government have for the economy. Um, we, we've just got so many problems in this country at the moment that we really should be addressing. Instead of which, you know, it's should we have yards or... <laughs> well, listen, we've got a ton of trouble, no matter how you spell it, I think is a way to look at it. But uh, <laughs> but let's talk a bit about your conference, because it's a bit disappointing. I would imagine if you're Ed Davey this morning waking up, you know, the Times doing the story about the trans row, which has kind of caused quite a good yeah. deal of problems because he couldn't really, could he, um, say that um, a woman, adult female, adult human female, uh, was a, 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 a phrase that people should use. What What's the problem with that phrase? Um, I think the, the, the pro I don't know the details of this and it's not appropriate for me to know them, but I think the problem with the, the phrase is that it's used by the anti-trans community as a kind of rallying call. It's one of the phrases that they use and it, it was a trans exclusionary t-shirt and it was part of a, a campaign. Um, and in the Liberal Democrats, we don't want to see anybody excluded. We don't want to see anybody victimised or any anyone discriminated against. Yeah, but the, yeah, against. But the woman who wore the T-shirt with that on it has been excluded from running for Parliament. So you've kind of gone against your own policy, haven't you? Well, I don't I don't actually know the details of that case. I think it's probably, you know, I don't know, but, you know, it might be about more than a, a T-shirt. Um, but that is, it's not appropriate for me to go into something which is private to that person. We yes, have but if you've a distinct yeah, but if and independent... If you've got a policy about non-exclusion, non why are you excluding someone? Well, that, you know, that we have a distinct and independent um, process to deal with all sorts of um, disciplinary matters, complaints, things like that. And it's not appropriate for me to talk about it. Um, yeah, well, it makes, well, it makes you look a bit hypocritical is all I mean. I don't mean you personally. I mean, as a party, it makes you well, look I like the party so. of hypocrites. I think if, if you look at it from a different um, perspective, if I were to wear a T-shirt with a racist slogan on it, and promote a racist argument, then I wouldn't be promoting the the values of the Liberal Democrats. I wouldn't, you know, I I wouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be wearing a racist T-shirt anyway. But if I were to do that, I wouldn't be promoting the values of the Liberal Democrats. I wouldn't be um, promoting values that we think are acceptable in society. And therefore, you know, I I I, I shouldn't be part of the party. Okay, so that's so if somebody who believes that women are women because they have a womb or that they are allowed to go into women's prisons and men who are who, who are identifying as women should not be in there that makes them unacceptable to the lib dems no 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 what we're talking about, in the there is a debate going on at the moment we all know that and unfortunately mike i think it's become really toxic and i think we've got away from thinking about the people at the center of it and I think we need to unstrip all the toxic language and all the the um, unreasonable statements. And we need to start thinking about the people at the centre of this, the children who are going through trauma because they feel that they've been they've been born um, one gender and it's not the right one. Um, the families who are going through trauma because they're seeing their children torn apart by this and they don't know what's best for their children. And that is what we should be remembering in this, that what we're talking about it, are the lives of individuals. I have a, a, a close friend who, whose son is going through gender recognition and I know how difficult it has all been for them. And we have, we have um, a quite senior member of the party who is a transgender woman. And I have heard her wife speak at a um, conference about how difficult it was for them and how she felt that her, her then husband was um, 
suicidal over this whole issue of would they be able to 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 reassign their gender and what should they do and how terrible it has been for that family and I think that is what we need to focus on supporting people helping them through what is an incredibly difficult time and making sure they feel safe secure and valued in society but a lot of women for example in refuges which are supposedly for women only don't feel safe if a trans woman is allowed in there in the same way that some women in prison don't feel safe if a trans woman is allowed into a, a, a ostensibly female space. And Ed Davey seems a bit a bit confused about all that. Well, no, I mean, I I, I think um, the, the whole issue of safe spaces and women being allowed in, if you are, your gender is reassigned, then you are whatever it's been reassigned. If you are, are, are born... Um, as, as a, with a male gender and you're identified as male, but then you reassign your gender according to the Equality Act, you are a woman and you're entitled into those spaces. Places like prisons, refugees should be risk assessed. They should be. Um, and I think that's I, I think that's a reasonable place to be. But um, if you look back at where we were in the 80s um, with gay rights, we were in a terrible place. And there were some horrific things said and done. Gay men were given a horrible time. Um, and we only now appreciate now how unnecessary and how how unfair it was. Um, and I think probably 30 years from now, we will regard the transgender debate in much the same way. And I think we have to remember that at the heart of this are people who just want to live their lives. Yeah. Well, Kristen, you've already made a far better point than Ed Davey did, uh, and you had less time to do it in. So maybe you should be the leader. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Christine Jarley, thank you very much indeed. Liberal Democrat MP for Edinburgh West. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it's looking a bit grey out there, so I don't know whether you're stocking up on wood. I personally am stocking up on wood because I rather like burning wood. Uh, it tends to be a rather good source of energy, and it keeps you very warm, especially if you have a wood-burning fireplace, as long as Michael Gove doesn't outlaw them, of course, as I said earlier. Let's talk to Peter Hitchens, as it is Tuesday morning, and it's time to get some uh, common sense for him. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning. I thought you might know a little bit about the gas supply that we get coming from uh, the Russians, because seemingly Vladimir Putin uh, has decided uh, that it's time to teach us all a bit of a lesson. So they're apparently withholding some gas because they want to build another pipeline. Well, I don't think that's really a very fair summary of things. So the, the, what's actually happened is that we've neglected to keep up our own reserves of gas. Normally, we'd have much larger reserves. We used to have a, a great hole in the ground called the rough field where we kept a, a very large reserve, which would last us several days, if not weeks, and we've allowed that to lapse. 
Uh, so we are almost totally reliant on immediate supplies. Now, there's a huge increase in demand for gas from Asia at the moment, uh, which has happened at, the, at precisely the wrong time. What Putin's up to is he's trying to put pressure on everybody in the European Union to, to let him go ahead with the so-called Nord Stream pipeline, which enables him to avoid sending gas through Ukraine, which he no longer wants to do. It's a separate issue. Uh, and also Russia has its own domestic pressures. Uh, I, it's it's the, to, to concentrate on the Russian aspect of this is wrong. What's, who's, no, I wasn't who's, intending to do that. No, I just think... We're really at fault of British governments, which over the years have pursued uh, dogmatic green policies, particularly uh, getting, rid of, uh, getting rid of our own domestic coal-fired ability to produce energy, uh, concentrating very heavily on hugely subsidised wind power, uh, which, of course, doesn't work when the wind doesn't blow, and on all kinds <laughs> of projects such as the, the development of, of battery storage, which is in, in its infancy and may never get beyond its infancy, a biomass, for goodness sake, which, which doesn't really solve any problems at all. And what we do when we close coal-fired power stations is not, and you, you might say, well, we oughtn't to be burning coal because it's quite dirty. But when we close the coal-fired power stations, we don't keep them in mothballs in case we should need them again, despite the huge cost of building them mm. and the immense amount of engineering in them. We blow them up. Yeah. And so they're just gone. And the the, the, the one nearest to me, Didcot A, was, was, was first of all shut and blown up uh, a couple of years ago. And we simply don't have it if we need it. Uh, when the, the Germans of a few years ago panicked over the Fukushima a nuclear power station non-disaster, where actually the power station survived remarkably well, an earthquake and a tsunami. Uh, they got rid of a lot of nuclear power and went over to coal in a big way. And everybody has gone over to gas yeah. because it doesn't look as bad as coal, although it is, of course, a fossil fuel and anything but carbon neutral. And there's been enormous pressure on gas. What we also do in this country is we use French nuclear power uh, coming over the connector and also power from the Netherlands and even from Ireland and from Norway, which come, comes into this country to make up for the fact that we can't power our own country or industry mm. anymore. And the, the problem with this is, especially since we left the European Union, that the obligations of European Union countries to supply us with energy through connectors are much weaker than they were before. And if they find they have a priority that that that, that, that makes them want to hang on to their own electricity, they won't send it to us. And it really is quite serious. The, the, oh, the I think it's very serious, Peter. And I, I, I wasn't. It's, in... the, it's, the, it's the result of, of green dogma. Yes. Well, uh, that was precisely the, my next. That was precisely yeah. to be my next point because I was not in any way trying to make out that it was all down to the Russians. What I was saying yeah. is that it's part of it. And I said earlier on, I had John Redwood on this morning, and I said to him, "Is this not the result of our headlong obsession?" Uh, with reducing carbon emissions and becoming a green economy, and this is where we now are. Well, it is, but it also it, it, the ridiculous thing is that to, in in the course of becoming supposedly green, we've switched from one form of, of uh, fossil fuel, coal, to another one, gas, and indeed the absolute emergency provisions if things go belly up. Uh, involve huge numbers of diesel generators scattered around the country, which would kick in at the same time as industry being asked to shut down various activities to lessen the load on the power system. We might get power cuts. What's more likely is that industries will be required to reduce their demand, which will have a, a similar effect, but it won't It won't mean your, your, your lights suddenly go out one, one afternoon. But we are seriously constrained with power in this country. And it's the other big problem is that the, the danger of power cuts is increased because unless you've got big gas or coal power plants or nuclear power plants in large numbers, a thing called inertia, which is a kind of pressure in the, in the power system, uh, weakens and it's in some cases disappears. And when you haven't got enough inertia, you're much more vulnerable to power cuts if things flip and flop. Mm. And this is what happened in August, I think, 2019, uh, when we had a sudden uh, power cut, which put a lot of things out of action. And the problem with power cuts in the modern world is so much of our, uh, of our life is dependent upon computers. And so many very complicated things like railway locomotives are now hugely computerized. But if they do fail, it can take mm. hours or even days to get them back in operation again. You can't just switch it on the mm. way you used to be able to. So it, the vulnerability is extraordinary. And I, it just amazes me that so little provision has been made for anything to go wrong. And that is going very seriously wrong. Yes, and, and you're absolutely, and you're absolutely the right. The dominant story of the next, uh, of the next few months, if, 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 if this country hasn't got enough power, to keep its uh, to keep its agriculture and its food industry going, and to keep itself warm properly, and in general to maintain industry, that is at least as big as cri a crisis as COVID. 
Oh, I think so. And you're quite right to point out the storage problem, because I was asking this question, I think, seven or eight years ago for the first time. Why did we shut down the storage facilities and why did we not build more storage facilities in the North Sea, which you could very easily do? And there have been companies offering to do it, but no government has ever decided it was worthwhile. Well, it's a general view in government that it would be all right. Uh, and of course, anybody who, who makes these, these policies based on the fact it will be all right is invariably caught out by events. And, and this is the case. I had argued many years ago that instead of spending all these multi-billions on, on Trident's submarine replacement, which you're about to do, uh, that we would be much, we'd guarantee our independence from foreign interference much more mm. if we stopped all the, 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 the whole Trident replacement and spent the money on building our own system of nuclear power generation, as France did many years ago, and therefore made ourselves energy independent. Uh, and indeed became an energy exporter again, which we used to be before the gas fields began to dry up that we that we so luckily found in the 1970s. So, it, but nobody paid any attention to this, or everybody said I was mad. And of course, the other problem is that during the, the course of privatisation, that greatly overrated activity, we pretty much dismantled our ability to make our own nuclear power stations, something we used to be quite good at. And so we became dependent on anybody we could buy in to do it. The, the latest dalliances with the Chinese, which isn't working out very well. And they take a long time to build. So if, 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 if when I've said it, someone had paid any attention, it might do any good. But if we now embarked, as we probably should, uh, on a huge nuclear power station building program, it would be 20 to 25 years before it would save us from the problems we face. And as I say, we are so dependent on our neighbours uh, for supplying power uh, mm. that it is extremely worrying to anybody who, who takes this seriously. And the price of the, the price of gas and the, the way in which it's now rising is terrifying, particularly for people on tight budgets. And yeah. they may have these prices now, but how long will they last? Well, this is the uh, thing. I mean, even 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 without this particular latest crisis of the of the gas prices yeah. being hiked, October was already going to see people's prices and people's uh, energy bills going up by as much as thirty five percent anyway. So I mean, well, you know, people are paying a fortune in this country now. Yeah, and remember those bills. You look at your power bill; they're padded with things called social obligations. Now, much of that is, of course, helping people who can't afford to, to buy their power. And I think most of us would say that we're we're willing to do that. But the the, the social obligations also include green subsidies, mm. uh, which we've been compelled to pay by stealth, in my view, for many many years. Which is which is why the the makers of, of renewable power keep saying how cheap it is. It's cheap because it's subsidised. Nice. And it's not actually that cheap. It's only, it's only started to get a little bit cheaper relatively recently. But as somebody pointed out to me this morning, imagine if we were all driving around electric cars. You know, where would that leave well, us? There would, there would be no way of charging them. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be possible. The other thing to bear in mind is that wind power is, in, in fact, you think, well, you put up a windmill, it'll be there forever. But in fact, they don't have very good uh, lasting qualities. Uh, and the, the, in fact, they, they, they break down and, and become obsolete and, uh, and cease to work properly after a remarkably short period of time. So they, they then need to be replaced as enormous expenses. Well, not to mention the huge cost of, of rigging up the pylons to connect them to the power system. It's really quite extraordinary. Let's move on to uh, something you wrote about this weekend and uh, what I would regard as kind of peak COVIDiacy. Uh, but in the opposite direction, you know, people used to call people COVIDiots if they were supposedly, you know, carefree and didn't pay too much attention to the rules. This is the opposite. People paying so much attention to COVID rules that they're falling down on escalators because they were not gripping the handrail. It's quite extraordinary. I know it is. It is. It is so sad that you know, someone goes on the London Underground and they're so terrified that they will pick up COVID from the escalator handrail, which I have to say is statistically almost impossible, uh, that they don't hold onto the handrail, they fall down the stairs and they're then quite seriously injured or even killed. It's a metaphor for for the, the, the rule of fear mm. in this matter. Uh, a rule of fear which, as I say, spread by a, a group whom I call the, the COVID Hezbollah, uh, fanatics uh, <laughs> who are constantly trying to, to, to spread this new faith, uh, including special garments which you have to wear and special ways in which you have to behave. Uh, who are waiting for the opportunity to uh, to plunge us into yet another uh, retreat into in, in, into un, undiluted home life mm. and economic self strangulation, and it, absolutely no guarantee that we will get through the coming winter without them doing that. And by by the way, I discovered after using the expression COVID Hezbollah, somebody wrote to me from Germany saying, "Hadn't heard that before, but here we call them the COVID witnesses." <laughs> well, I've sort of I was I mean, that wasn't I'm... bad. 
It's a bit like the cycling Taliban, as uh, uh, as brought in by I think it was Richard Littlejohn who sort of named. But I'm in the cycling Taliban, so I can't really. Attack. Yes, no, I suppose you are, but you don't. Well, you're not. You're not really. But you, I don't you, actually carry a rocket launcher, <laughs> but I, I do. I do bicycle about quite a bit. I saw a great cartoon actually, incidentally, at the weekend. Um, I think it was in Rod Little's column, uh, where it's the, the, the Afghan sort of assembled Taliban government um, talking about Dominic Raab being appointed. Uh, and the one guy saying, oh, I didn't realise that he had been appointed uh, to the to a new job. I was on holiday at the time, which, <laughs> yeah, I, thought was rather, which I thought was rather good. And that listen, man I, will never be able to take a holiday again for the rest <laughs> of um, I was amused as well by your um, continued still um, arguments on Twitter about the metric system, because, um, oh. I mean, I've been saying to people... It's a bit of a distraction. We kind of have a mixed system anyway, but I'm, I'm, I really like your arguments about why metric is, be- is, is, is not so good because it's not really based on anything. Well, it isn't based on But here's the thing. I, mean, I sort of care about it a bit. I, I'm upset to see uh, the, the, what I think are the beautiful human old measures that I grew up with and know very well mm. are being abolished by law. I, I went 20 years now up to Sunderland when Steve Thoburn, a greengrocer there, was actually prosecuted uh, for selling bananas by the pound weight <laughs> to a customer who wanted to buy bananas right. by the pound weight. I, what kind of legal system prosecutes somebody for that? I do not know. Yeah. I thought this had gone too far. And I began to look into it a bit and read up on it. And I, I came to the conclusion that, that there's a huge fanaticism behind the system. You remember it was introduced by the French revolutionaries. In fact, the Directory in 1799 were the ones who, who plumped it down. And they, they were actually trying to remove all the landmarks of old society. That was when they got rid of all the old French uh, all, all the old French provinces, all the old accordance of our county boundaries, changed the names of everything, uh, began the world over again. It's mm. a revolutionary thing. And it's, it's funny that in the, in, the, in the gaps between murdering huge numbers of people and cutting the king's head off, they still <laughs> managed to pursue this activity yeah. because they think it was so important. And yet what I get is metricators attacking me for caring about it. Right. Well, they're the ones who get every, every time there's a revolution or an invasion. Uh, that's how the metric system largely spreads. I mean, there are exceptions. My favorite exception being apartheid South Africa. Uh, when, if you may remember, in the 60s, they, they broke away from the British Commonwealth yeah. and abandoned the monarchy. Uh, one of the first things they did was they went metric and decimal to emphasise that they weren't British anymore, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Yes. Uh, it's not necessarily a left-wing revolutionary thing, and right-wing revolutionaries are keen on it as well. But say any of this, and you're surrounded yeah. immediately by a huge swarm of metricating midges, <laughs> biting and stinging and shouting at you, fanatic! Right. Uh, why, is, why do you care about this? My answer to this is I care about it because they care about it. Yes, and I think that's true, isn't it? Because there is, I think there is, and I said this to, to Christine Jardin, who apparently jokingly put out a tweet, she's Liberal Democrat MP for Edinburgh West, jokingly put out a tweet saying, I don't actually know what any imperial measurements are. She told me that was ironic. Um, as I said to her, you should know better than to use irony on Twitter yeah. because nobody really gets that. But I mean, I try and explain for example, pounds, shillings, and pence to my children, and they've got, they'd look at me as if I'm talking, you know, in uh, you know gobbledygook to them. Like, Why would you have what's a guinea? Well, twenty guineas is what? You know, what? How does that work? They they look at it as a very illogical system. Well, the guinea was the old equivalent of VAT. Yes. Charge charge an extra five percent on anything. That was what that was. And, yeah. and lawyers and people like that are always charging guineas rather than pounds, so they'd increase their bills. But I've got no affection for the guinea. But the thing about the old measures is that they had a different measure for each purpose. Mm. So when you're doing woodwork, I must be a lot of people who do woodwork. I won't say most appreciate the fact that you've got inches for certain types of work and feet for others. Uh, and again, with with weighing things, some things are better weighed in ounces, and some better in pounds, better in stones, and some in hundred weights and tons. That was one of the things about what I call the customary system. The imperial system makes it sound as if it's, it's to do with Cecil Rhodes, which it isn't. <laughs> it, 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 it is customary, and it's based. On, the, the other thing about customary measures is they're based largely on the human body uh, and on he, things that humans do. A pound is pretty much what you could hold comfortably in your hand. We know what a foot is. We know what a, 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 a we know what an inch is, and we know what a yard is a pace. So it's it's it starts with the human body and the individual. The, the metric system starts with the state and some committee saying this is what you will measure things in, whether you like it or not. Even Napoleon Bonaparte couldn't stand it. You know, the man who codified the whole of Europe, he said the French were being driven mad by the metric system, so he modified it. And, 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 and introduced semi-metric measurements, which are still used in France. You buy 
butter privately from a farmer in Normandy, he'll sell it to you in leave, which is roughly a pound. Uh, and that's the result of Napoleon doing that. And, and I keep making this point about metric measures being cold and arbitrary and, and ill-sized. Fr France went metric 220 years ago. One of the biggest industries and the proudest industry in France is wine. You try and buy a bottle of decent wine in a litre bottle, you go and find it. No, even after 220 years, they still sell it in a bottle. Mm. And do you know what the bottle is the equivalent of in English measures? Well, I, I don't know what it is, but I read well, I'll tell you what it that is. it was, a, a, it was an amount of wine for two, for two people, wasn't it? It's the equivalent of what used to be called in English measures a bottle. Ah. That's what they called it. Right. It, it was just the right size where two people <laughs> wanted to sit down with a bottle. That's what it was. And uh, 220 years of the metric system, and they haven't got rid of it. Why? Because the litre is inconvenient and not quite the right size. And here's another thing. In, in all the countries with metric measurements, you go to the schools, look at the rulers that the children are carrying. They're 30 centimetres long. What's 30 centimetres? It's a foot. Right. The metric system doesn't have a foot, except <laughs> it makes foot-long rulers for school children. Why is that? Because the metre is an inconvenient, far yes. too long, unwieldy measure. Unit, I should say. Yes. But I think the trouble is that it, it's a generational thing as well, because, I mean, I still don't know how tall I am uh, in metres. I have no idea. Um, I do know how tall I am in feet and inches. Uh, similarly, whenever they say uh, expect four millimetres of rain or four centimetres of rain, I have to check... Uh, on Google, how many how, how many inches that is, because I don't really know. I'm not sure. Whereas I think for my kids who are teenagers, it's the complete opposite. I don't know. I think a lot of people still use in private life. The, the, uh, you ask most people, quite young people, how tall they are. They'll give it you in feet and inches and, mm. and how much they weigh. They'll give it you in stones and pounds. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Neil Heron made this great remark that when the, the weight of a baby is given out, in, a newborn is given out in kilograms, people can't work out whether it's the size of a large tomato or a small <laughs> elephant. Unless you give it in pounds and ounces, nobody knows how big the baby is. No. People can't visualise metric measurements. And that's another thing about them. They are hard. I mean, I, I was taught both. Well, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued as well by the bag of sugar analogy. You know, when they say, oh, it's about the size of a bag of sugar. You know, needless to say, there are many sizes of bags of sugar, but I imagine a bag of sugar to be a pound. Yeah, I, it, 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 or, or maybe two. But I mean, the, the, here's another thing. When when I was growing up, you bought a jar of marmalade. It was a pound jar. That was the size. Yeah. I, and once you get rid of the pound and you can just slide it along in, in however many grams you choose to, to, to sell it in, uh, then what happens is you carry on selling the thing at the same price, but the number of grams goes down. So you look at uh, a lot of jam jars now, they're down to 400 or 415 grams. Uh, when the equivalent of a pound was 453. So they started out at 453 and they priced guys. And the, the, the thing about the customary measures, again, is they were landmarks. And once you get rid of the landmarks, people can fiddle around with things. And they, it has made price gouging a lot of that kind a lot easier. Yes. You, you, well, if you look carefully at the, at the actual metric weights of things, so they, which used to be pound equivalents, they're now much smaller. Well, I think if you probably found out how much a gallon of petrol costs now, you'd be absolutely horrified because, I mean, it's high enough. It's now 135 or something in litres. Um, well, I think, people buy, I think people buy petrol by the pound sterling now, don't they? Yeah, I think so. They talk, yeah, they talk. Roughly one fill a tank, and then they, and they, 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 they don't really calculate. And just a lot of people in, in open markets, in, in England and Ireland too, buy their fruit and vegetables, uh, not by the kilogram, but by the bulb. Mm. At least they can see what they're buying. But people, and you get an awful lot of, of, of measurements can deal with it's such and such that so many times the height of a London bus or so many times the, the size of a football stadium. Because if you gave it in metres, a lot of people wouldn't know what you're talking about. Yes. They, they don't form a picture in the head. No. Shoes is another one. Um, I went to buy a pair of shoes the other day. I couldn't find any shoes that were measured in anything other than European measurements, like 42, 43, 44, you know. And when I was asked what size I, my feet were, were, I said, well, it's usually a 10. It could be a nine and a half. And the woman looked at me like I was speaking Japanese. Yeah, that's strange. I, I thought I, I, I hadn't found that difficult. You know what shoe, what shoe sizes are measured in, don't you? No, feet. What your nine and a half of? No. Barley corns. Is that right? You yeah. see, this is what I was finding fascinating reading your tweets. <laughs> barley corns. Barley corns. Nine and a half barley corns long. That's your feet. 
and it, it, it is um, that that is an old English measure. They're quite picturesque, aren't they? That's I lovely. That is lovely. I, I recommend uh, you. Everyone should read Peter's descriptions of these things because they're very good. Peter, we're out of time, sadly. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, very amusing conversation about the metric system and why uh, the imperial measures, as Peter says, probably wrongly named, are actually quite important because they actually measure specific things. Who knew that my, my feet were nine and a half barley corns long? And does it matter to you? Uh, probably not. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, Simon Calder from The Independent, the travel guru to the stars, is always uh, on hand with some great information. And he's always in an exciting place. Now, today I noticed that he was at the site of a couple of new underground stations that were opening up on the Northern Line in London. Simon, where are you? Uh, currently, I'm in central London for complicated reasons. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm backstage in the Apollo, where you can see Jamie, although I'm not in it, as you probably realise. <laughs> so, um, yeah, complicated as always, but um, great to talk to you. And my goodness me, what a piece of theatre the opening of the Northern Line extension was. Now, if you are living, if you're listening somewhere lovely like Newcastle mm. or Swansea or Aberdeen, you're thinking, what? They opened two little stations and it went for two... What, two miles and it cost uh, i worked this out uh, on my own one hundred thousand pounds per foot Blimey. you are probably thinking oh well the streets are paved with gold or at least they could be at that sort of price well no um, wonder and, no wonder tfl hasn't got any money was, would be my suggestion to you no they're actually coming around your house soon i think to uh, <laughs> to get a bit more um but look it was wonderful in the sense that Every tube enthusiast in the world converged on it. So I was there on the 5.28 a.m. Mm. and everyone was there. So I met uh, one woman, uh, Leah, who said, this is the best day of my life. Really? Um, because most of these people, they're young. They're even younger than you, Mike, if you can Incredible. imagine such a concept. Yeah. And, and it's because we haven't had any new tube stations opening this century mm. they um, had not experienced this before and it was a joyful occasion all round and just to give you the measure of what these people are like they're great i love them um somebody had brought along the word station uh -huh. because he wanted to stick it on the sign at battersea power station because the official name he thought should be battersea power station station right well, so, that's a very good. That's a very good point. Yes. So, so where does this extension actually go then? Right, it goes all the way from Kennington, yeah. which is sort of South London-ish. Yeah. Um, yeah, sort of. If, if, yeah, it's a bit down from the Elephant and Castle. That's the best way to think of it. So, it's it's definitely south of the river, um, and it's the sort of place you live in if you can't live north of the river, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, it goes from there to Nine Elms, oh, yeah. which is a little mini Manhattan that was um, that somebody thought was a great idea before COVID and Brexit. Um, who knows what a good, whether it's going to be a good idea mm. um, for ever. Um, and it's also very close to the American Embassy, if anybody has the misfortune to have to go and get a visa from there. Yeah. Um, and then it goes to Battersea Power Station, which is, you will recall, the uh, this iconic structure um, by the Thames, uh, which has been derelict, actually, for oh, about 30, Made 40 years. Made famous, of course, by the album cover Pink, Pink Floyd's Animals, right? Exactly, yes. Anyway, um, it, it's being replenished. It's being turned into apartments. There's lots happening around there. And it was a bit of London, which was sort of all a bit industrially and, and, and a bit sort of derelict. Yes. And, uh, rather like my myself. It's now and, been um, it's now been what can only be described as gentrified, Simon. I mean, this sounds to me like the rich people's line because what I can tell you about the Battersea Power Station development is that the penthouse apartment is on sale uh, for one bedroom for around about eight million quid. Okay. Well, that that's um, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Although can't be that gentrified. You should have seen the look on people's faces when they realised there was nowhere within a mile where they could find a latte this morning. Oh my goodness, man! Um, that is yeah, shocking. So, uh, well, I'm sure there'll anyway, be sure there'll be some well, growing up around there soon. Yes. Anyway, a, a chap turned up with a, one of those sort of food truck things, and um, right. uh, they, they they felt a lot better after that. But um, if you're in London, I mean, Battersea Power Station is quite a fun, interesting new way to uh, look at the world, and so therefore, um, I would uh, recommend that you might want to um, uh, just take a look and 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 see the area. And if you really want to, go on this new, incredibly expensive two-mile tube run. Yes, you could do that, or uh, if you prefer, you could get on a boat uh, and go down to uh, Battersea Power Station. 
the station uh, uh, by, <laughs> by, by a riverboat. But that's another story. That's enough about yeah. that. Anyway, listen, I'm glad you mentioned the American embassy because I've got a couple of questions for you regarding America um, in, 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 uh, in, in my own world. I was wondering if, for example, that Joe Biden and Boris Johnson reached some kind of agreement in the next couple of days to, for, for, for us to go there. Do you know when you get one of those visas that's valid for two years as a, as a visitor, I pres would, would you presume that that would still be valid if it was running or would you have to apply for another one? Well, look, if uh, getting into America is a complete pain, obviously, it's been off limits for the last 18 months. It hasn't been issuing ESTAs, these permits to get in. If you're lucky enough to get a visa, um, typically because you are a student or you're a particular uh, profession or indeed even a journalist, mm. then you, you should be able to get in. But um, you can't at the moment unless you go and um, launder your UK status in somewhere like Mexico. Yes. Um, and, and so therefore, it's uh, it. it it's an absolute mess. The Telegraph front page this morning, as you would have seen, um, says that uh, Boris Johnson is going to make an impassioned plea to Joe Biden. Well, he's not the first. That, that, that nice Angela Merkel went round the White House the other day and said, Oi, can you let us in, please? Mm. Or bitter, she would have said. Yes. Um, and um, uh, he said, they said no. Yes. <laughs> so I, th I think the answer might be the same. All, all Europeans, we are all equally banned. Yes, that's not very helpful. Now, my second question is re regarding an American person coming here. Um, yes. What do they need to do once they do they have to do a two day PCR test? Uh, they, they oh, 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 oh. it all depends what day of the week it is almost. Yes. Um, in, in um, Right, so there are no fewer than three different protocols for vaccinated people coming into the UK from uh, in October. So up until the 4th of October, uh, the first of these is that you need to have a test to fly and then a pre-booked PCR test for day two. Right. From the 4th of October onwards, then you need to have a... pre You don't have the test to fly, you still need the pre-booked um a PCR test right. and then sometime late in October we don't have a date it's going to be a lateral flow test only right so you get your head around that it's um utterly utterly confusing the reason, the reason I ask you is because my sister's actually visiting in October after the fourth um oh. so where would she then I mean can you get one of these tests done anywhere I mean where do you book it Oh, you, you just go to the um, government website, you look up, um, uh, at the moment, Amber List uh, rules, and it will say, why don't you book with one of these fine suppliers? Okay. And, um, but so my so she'll need to have that, to will that. she need to have that sent somewhere then, won't she? Uh, well, no, you see, my strong advice to anybody with any of these tests when you come back is called a day two test, yeah. but it is absolutely not a day two test. It's a test the day you come back or the day after that, or the day after that, ah. which is what they call day two. So, therefore, my strong recommendation is as soon as she gets off the plane, presumably at Heathrow, yeah. um, just goes straight to, uh, there's a couple of testing centres there, just go straight in. It's going to cost you 59 quid, right. but you get it all done. And if it's got any medical value at all, um, which some people would say it doesn't have, uh, then it will, um, it will actually, it will show up then. So you can book a test at Heathrow from abroad, can you? Uh, you can, yes, um, absolutely. It's, it's very easy. And right. you've got to book a test um, because otherwise you won't be able to fill in your passenger locator form. And if you can't fill in your passenger locator form, then you will not be allowed on the plane. Yes. Now, this business of PCR tests being changed for lateral flows for, say, returning Britons now, because, I mean, what they've done effectively, Simon, as you'll probably know better than anyone, uh, is they've now managed to screw up half term. Because I was hopeful that I might be able to go somewhere at half term because the rules were now going to be slightly different. But in fact, they're not any different at all because half term doesn't end um, until the end of October. Uh, well, yes, except that they are going to bring in this particularly for lateral uh, for the end of half term. So don't the, the main thing to do. Nobody, if you're going abroad and you're coming back into the UK, please don't even think about booking a test at this stage because right. the, the, the rules cannot get any more complicated, chaotic and expensive. Mm. They can only get easier. So therefore, just fill in the form the night before you come back. If you've got to book a PCR test, so be it. But probably by then it'd be a lateral flow test. But yeah. I'm getting so much incoming from people who say, oh, yeah, well, I'm going away for October half term and I've booked all these tests and now I don't need them. And the company says um, I can't have my money back. Um, no surprise there. Very sadly. Yeah, there's a funny thing, because that's the other yeah. part about it. Right. So from the fourth, is it right to say that you will not need a 
pre-flight test. So if you're coming back from Croatia or Spain or Italy or whatever, you will not yeah. need to take a test before you fly back. But yep. uh, you yep. might have to if you're if you're under 18 and over 12 or not. No, no, no. That that was lots of lots of stuff in the over the weekend. Absolutely confusing. If you are a child under 18 who lives in the UK, then you don't you are treated as a fully vaccinated person. Right. So you don't need a test before you fly from 4 a.m. on the 4th of October. So if, I take, so if I take my kids away, um, that will be OK then. Oh, sure. Yes. And it would be quite a lot uh, cheaper for the Graham family than it would have been um, had they not made this change. But it won't be that much less faff. It will still be a faff. Yes. Now, I don't know how closely you follow uh, the family, Graham, uh, in terms of our social media platforms. Yeah. Uh, but my daughter had an exchange with James Cleverly. Uh, over ah. the weekend because she sent Ooh, I didn't see that. No. Uh, she sent a um, uh, a question basically to Boris Johnson about how she's been vaccinated with a vaccine that was made in Britain but she still can't come back to Britain without a quarantine yeah. because the vaccine was given to her in the UAE. He said this is a small technical issue of aligning details on the UAE vaccination certificate and it is being resolved but he didn't say how long that would take but I was quite impressed with his uh, response. Yeah. Well, look, I'm going to have a look at this, Mike. Really exciting. No, there is a huge amount of upset by the U about the UK saying, OK, from the 4th of October, we'll, we'll recognise a few more vaccines from a few more foreign countries. But really, actually, the vast majority we are not going to recognise, even though it's exactly the same Pfizer or AstraZeneca um, running around in your veins. We're not going to recognise it. It's utterly bizarre and scandalous. And Mike, I think I've just heard my, my three minute call, so I may have to leave you at this stage oh right where are you going now well no I've, I've, I've just got a commitment which i have to um oh i see to, well afraid. i'll tell you yes. what I've, I've dm'd you that exchange uh, oh, between uh, my Thank daughter you. and mr cleverly so you can maybe check it out for us because i'm quite keen for her to come here without having to quarantine but listen simon thank you very much indeed uh enjoy the theater uh, enjoy the rest of the week and we shall speak to you no doubt soon. Simon Calder there uh, with the latest on what exactly is going on with the travelling business because I think for most of us it's so confusing that you absolutely need to check. And what he's just said is that if you are thinking of going away at half term, if you are thinking of going anywhere at all, don't do anything about booking a test to come back because it might have changed by then. But the trouble is the government won't tell us by which date it will change. They just say later in October at the moment. From the 4th of October, you don't need to test anybody before you get back on a plane to come back home. So I guess the good point about that is that you can't get stuck in another country because if you did take a test and it did say that you were positive before you got on a plane, you then have to quarantine in the country you were in. I know some people that's happened to. So and I know that a lot of people out there still don't like talking about holidays because they can't either afford to go or they can't get away. I could do with one, but I don't know if I can go. I really don't. This is the problem. <laughs> When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.